Hi, my name is Bonnie Huey. I'm the translator of Chima Jin's Notes of a Crocodile. Um, I'm joined here uh, to my left by uh, Ari Lister Heinrich, who is the translator of Last Notes from Monart, and uh, poet Eileen Miles. All of us are big fans of Chima Jin. And I'd like to know from the audience, with a show of hands, who here has actually read a book by Chi Miao Jin? Anyone? Ooh, a few people. Pretty good. Okay. Yeah. Hi. Great. Um, well, we're here today to celebrate her legacy. Um, I know that her autobiography, uh, which ends with her suicide, largely colors how people see her. And what we want to do today maybe is to share on a more personal level how uh, her life impacted ours. And uh, I hope that some of you can also share your own experiences with the book and how you came across it. Because for us, I think it's a little bit of a way of creating a connection. Um, Ari and I just met for the first time backstage a few minutes ago. And I think we both have um, a kind of connection that transcends what's rational and uh, what we can say is uh, like a, I don't know, material connection. So I hope that we can have a conversation today. Like one thing that brought me to this book is uh, the study of queer literature when around the time that this book came out, um, I didn't know about Tumajin. I wasn't someone who was there uh, in Taipei in the 90s or whatever, and um, Ari here was. So I would love to kind of hear a little bit about how you, Ari, got into the book, like how it was introduced to you. Because for me, it was like uh, not until about 2009 or so that I translated a book and I got Chima Jin's books as a gift for doing a translation. And um, I don't know, it, someone just said, oh, I liked your translation and I think this is the first Taiwanese author you should read. And that's how it became a project for me. But um, I want to know how her work fell into your hands. Oh, I'll definitely share about that as, and we can elaborate to move, uh, moving forward. <laughs> moving, literally moving forward. Um, yeah, it's, I think part of the attraction of an author like Chu um, for many people is that you can bring so much of your own emotion and experience to it, and it's going to speak. It, it will speak to a lot of different people in different ways. So, um, yeah, um, I'm Ari Heinrich, and um, I'm also excited to be able to talk about a personal relationship to the text and um, 
see what other people think of it as well afterward. Um, my nutshell version, which I can elaborate on or not, is um, I'm a, a scholar of Chinese literature, cultural studies, and art artists history. And artists and women. Ooh, and artists and women. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't my voice. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> and um, I uh, have, uh, so I spent, I had to spend a certain amount of time in uh, learning Chinese. I started as an adult. I was in college when I started learning Mandarin and then lived in Taiwan for a number of years. Probably, I, I keep, I need to calculate it, look at my passport at some point, but somewhere in the neighborhood of seven or eight years and um, made a lot of friends and I was um, living as a lesbian at the time. And I, so I was attuned, I was paying attention to see where lesbians were hanging out. And um, so Chiu's name came up a lot and we were one degree of separation. So we also would have been the same age and I'd heard about her for many years. Um, when she died, it, was a, it sent a shockwave uh, through a lot of LGB, LGB for now, I'll say, uh, communities. Um, and um, so it was kind of in the back of my consciousness. And then one day in Taipei in a bookstore, I was um, looking for something to translate just as a matter, as a way of working on my language skills. And I had had another experience translating a text I didn't really enjoy and like Scarlett O'Hara, I was like on the top of the hill with my carrot going, I'm never translating something I don't care about again. <laughs> and there was, as I was thinking this, there was her book right on, in, on the shelf in Chengping. Um, and I started flipping through it. That was it, I have to do this one. And it, but it took many years actually, as I couldn't sit with it too long. So did you read Last Words first or Crocodile first? Um, I read Crocodile first but some years before that, so I hadn't, I hadn't read it recently. Uh, but both of her texts were, were there. I think they're just very different works. So, but at the moment, I think this particular one resonated. Yeah, I feel like you were meant to translate that book. What, what was it, was there something for you like that like hooked you in and made you think like, oh, like it has to be this one? Because, like, Crocodile is a pretty popular book, but for whatever reason, like, you're like, this one has to go into English first. It's true. So if you haven't read the books yet, they're, they're, they're pretty different in certain ways, and um, the Momach is a, it, it can be construed as a dark book. It can also be, it depends on how we interpret it. We might discuss that more at some point. Um, but for me, it was that personal voice, um, the fact that when you open the book and you see... You can, you can see her, her um, autobiographical orientation. You can see that memoir mode speaking directly to you. And uh, it speaks, I think this is something that other readers that I've read um, find attractive about the work, is that it, there's something that draws you in. It makes you feel like you're not alone when you're in pain. Other times, um, sometimes the, the most intimate you can be is not actually with a, a friend, a living person who's right next to you, but with another kind of a friend. Uh, that you can find in this book. So I think there was something about that that spoke to me personally. But, um, yeah. And I, I suppose I want to jump in now and say how I met Chu Ma Zhen. And um, it, it's, it's, it's sort of terrific because um, Ari and I had just talked about it today when we had coffee, which was that we were both professors at the University of California in San Diego, except the weirdness of our relationship was you were arriving and I was leaving. And so we were spending time, I think, in my, my house. I was basically taking all my worldly possessions in my house in San Diego and putting it into storage. And you were the friend who I 
barely knew who decided to help me pack. And so as we were moving all these things around and getting them ready for storage, you started to tell me about Chu Ma Zhen and that, that, that you were translating this book and that you thought it was one that I would really like. And so it, it kind of triggered something that I've experienced with a number of writers who have been really important to me. There's a Swiss writer, Robert Walser, who I was once visiting somebody in Gloucester, Mass, and I was very drunk with a friend, and they started telling me about this writer, Robert Walser, and I was like, oh my God, this is the writer I need to read, and I didn't read him for another 10 years, but my writing changed at that description, and I think the same thing happened with you, which was I just began to anticipate this book with incredible excitement. And then when the book finally came into the world, um, part of my joy was that I think, I, I think part of the reason I'm sitting here is because I, I wrote a review of the book when it came out um, initially in, in book form. And, um, and I just became known as a fan. And, um, and then Bonnie and I met when the, when, and I go, again, like, and your book created the phenomena of waiting for notes of a crocodile. When, when do we get to read this book? And then Bonnie and I met when that book came out, and I began to write about it, and I'm still writing about it and have yet to publish anything about I think what I'm, I'm, kind, of, I'm kind of looking forward to creating something about her work that, that will say why her work is so important to me. But I, I just wanted to say quickly, I think there's about five things. One is that she's one of us. You know, it's sort of like I, as a poet and fiction writer, I'm in a cluster of writers that include Kathy Acker, Laurie Weeks, Chris Krause. And, and the epistolary form is really important. And so to, to read um, Last Words and, and to, to realize this book came out in 1995, put her squarely in a writing world um, that I know, and yet it's still very, you know, very Anglo-centric, very North American. And to realize that we had you know, like friends. I feel like I sort of like I really experienced this writer as a friend that, that I didn't totally. Meet. And totally. and that's part of the and I think the thing that one thing that Ari said in the introduction that I find sort of unforgettable is that um that, that book was written just before the internet. And there's no way we can sell short what it means to be a writer just before everything changed. It was sort of like in the same way that like before um, MTV and um, globalism, there was a way where things would happen in this neighborhood. Like there was a girl who worked at a bar called Madonna and when she wore little crucifixes on her ears that all the junk... I mean, like there was a local thing that suddenly went global. And I think there's another... There's a kind of, kind of an opposite intimate thing, which is that there was a kind of writing that we did before the internet, you know? And the, the meaning of an epistolary novel just before everything changed, you know? And... Um, Yet what's so uncanny is that, that Notes of a Crocodile is also is, is kind of the opposite because what... I mean, the, the legend that she... In fact, um, published this novel right at a moment when I think that in, in Taiwan weren't certain reporters went into a lesbian bar and secretly recorded the, the lifestyle of lesbians in Taiwan. And that went on, what, national television the same week that this book came out and, and propelled her. So it's like, it's interesting that the media propelled her into fame in a certain way, and then the media really defined the limits of her literary production in this other way. Um, so I think she's, she's like, I mean, I think all writing is so affected by, by technology. We can never, we can never um, you know, like, um, I mean, books, for instance, people used to recite books. You know, it's sort of like they were like, oh no, we publish books, it'll ruin everything, what'll happen to memory, you know? And it's so like, at each subsequent, um, 
invention of technology has changed what it is that writers do. And I think that um, Chu Mashin is so so squarely influenced by these two things in, in different ways. And she's such a postmodern writer um, that... that um, I don't regret... I mean, I think we, we have feelings about the fact that she wrote two books and died, and we don't have more. And I think this, there's something very um, fertile in that thought to, to not make it be sad, but in, in a way to be... In, and death is a technology. Suicide is, a, suicide is an incredible technology and a defi- definition of the, my career ends here. Um, and so I think she's, you know, she's such a writer of extremes, and to not look at that, even that final gesture, as as something that's tragic, but more um, part of the part of the ritual of the whole career. Um. Sorry. <laughs> well, I like how you put that. Oh, sorry, I didn't even. No, go. Go. No, I, I mean, I have such complicated feelings about her suicide. Um, I wasn't prepared for like how people would respond to the translation of Crocodile, and like part of me like really wants to like protect her from this idea that like she's a victim or that her life uh, was full of suffering. I think there is maybe something that's like somewhat cultural about um, like the views of like suicide that aren't really. Um, like maybe well established within like like a Western Anglocentric tradition, where um, like like a collective identity isn't so strong, and um, things like self immolation or whatever, or death over like a political suicide or something like that, has like this really profound pull on people, like morally, um, you know, like. For uh, people who don't know, like the origin of like the Dragon Boat Festival, uh, like in, in Chinese culture, is based on uh, the suicide of this uh, poet Tu uh, Yan, like Wat Yun in Cantonese, and um, he's a person who was a, like a dissident in government, and he grabbed a stone and jumped into the river, and that's why people eat like these like sticky dumplings, <laughs> sticky rice dumplings. And there's like this sense of um, communion in eating those things because after his death, people mourned it, you know, by like throwing rice so that into the river so that the fish wouldn't eat his body. And I think mm-hmm. like that impact of um, someone who who died as like a paragon of moral virtue has like this weight that where where it's seen as not necessarily like tragic, but like honorable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think also there's, I, I like what you're pointing out too, that there are multiple ways of looking at it and grounding things in tradition if, if you want. And I was thinking also how, um, isn't, also, isn't suicide among authors also a gendered thing? Like if a man decides I'm going to off myself the literature, then he's a great artist. A woman has uh, some something's wrong with her if she did it. So I, I always feel protective as well. Like before you judge, let's consider her an artist with agency who's made certain choices. It's complicated choices that leave us with a loss, but you know. That's no, that's absolutely where I was going to go too, because I think even even among um, Amer- American co- poets, there's a cult of of 
um, Sylvia, I mean Sylvia Platt, one of the first poets I ever read, who actually gave me permission to think of my life as being a whole and intact thing that I, as an adult, had the right to end. You know, when I came to New York in my 20s and I started reading, writing poetry and then I read a book about suicide and Sylvia Platt and instead of laughing at this laughable woman who killed herself, it was, it was talked about in this kind of respectful way and linked to classical, you know... Um, you know, whoever killed himself with Himmelot, with Socrates, you know, it was just sort of like as a grand philosophical gesture, you know, and I remember as a young woman thinking, I have the right to think of my life as real and serious, and as a poet, I'm executing myself onto the page, and, as, and I can live as long as I want, or as short as I want, and I think, it's truly, I think there's, a, the people la- there's something laughable about female suicide in the same way that there's something laughable about females, and it's like so much of the beauty of this work, I mean, I think to compare her to somebody like Genet in terms of excess, that it's an adult writing about the passion, and the, like, in, particularly in Notes of a Crocodile, the passion and the seriousness of female feelings when you're very young. Female childhood is wild and sexual and intense and rich. And we're afraid of those descriptions. And this is a book, and this is a writer who is not afraid about, talk, about talking about female excess in any of the work. Yeah, and well, in last words, she talks a lot about like what kind of artist she wants to be and how lived experience is integrated into that work. And she actually wanted to experience extremes because uh, she uses like this term like shaman to describe like this ideal of the artist kind of like as, as like a vessel for life experiences. And she talks about um, her favorite filmmakers because she was also, um, in addition to being a fiction writer, she was a filmmaker. And like at the time of that book, uh, her favorite filmmaker was Theo Angelopoulos. And like she goes on about like landscape in the mist, which is this brutal story about like two kids who are looking for their father, and they go to like a foreign country and they get taken advantage of. This like little girl gets raped and it's it doesn't end like on a hopeful note. It's just ambiguous. And that sense of like wanting to use art to like give people a sense of how to live through like the most brutal situations is part of both those works, right? There's a sense like, she says like, at the end of these letters, it's like, the message is like, I'll give these to you, but save me, (laughs) right? It's like thrusting it at the reader, saying, Mm -hmm. well, now I've given you this experience through art, but when you encounter it in real life, will you be able to handle the problem? Hmm. And that's very much the same thing with, it, this is notes of crocodile. It's more like here, I'll save you. <laughs> but last words is really like, okay, now save me because will you be that friend? Was that a factor for you in uh, when you were translating uh, crocodile? Did you feel? Did you feel like uh, were you called to identify into the work, or did you feel a distance from it? What was your relationship to the narrative? This is why I'm so glad that I did not translate last words because I feel like as a translator, I'm so much of a method actor that I could not 
translate a book where someone kills themselves uh, as part of you know the act of performance. It's true. It took me about five years, and you can see it's a really small, thin volume because I just couldn't be alone with it too long in that to try and be it. But was that something that I mean? As I guess this is a, a question as a translator, but maybe also just as a writer. Like, do you how do you how does it feel for you when you when you read that book? Was it a was it an emotional connection? Did you just think there's something of me in there, or did you just think this is beautiful and I must render it? I felt like I was doing a favor for an old friend. Mm-hmm. Like I, I felt like from the very first page, I know this woman, and I'm going to help her, or I'm going to like execute her will. Mm-hmm. There's an odd way in which um, um, last words as a book also strikes me as a burial. You know. Because the book, the book tells right in the dedication. I think they, that her, her lover and her had a pet rabbit that died just before she killed herself, and so it's like it's like a it's like a big piece of the book is talking about the burial. I mean, it's kind of amazing. She breaks into some park in Paris and climbs over the fence with a shovel and all this stuff late at night, sneaking around in the dark to bury a, a rabbit in in the ground. Um, and and yet there was just some way in which it was like the burial of the rabbit inside the book made me think about the, how the book was kind of burying her own body in a way because you just it was very hard to write I mean just to write a review of that book was really difficult because you just didn't want to shoot your wad right at the beginning of the review <laughs> and it, it seems like and it, you're compelled to in a way by literary culture in the first paragraph say unfortunately she killed herself at 27 and it's like then where do you go as a, as a, you know, just as a literary creation, just a review even? It's, the narrative is sort of front-loaded and, and then sort of dead already, and it was very difficult to figure out. But the book itself, what she does is that she disrupts it all the time. Um, the pattern of the book is to be, write, to be writing at the end and then be writing kind of from the middle and to be writing to different people all the time. So you're never... It's really beautiful. It's a very flickering structure. You're never allowed to, to kind of think you know where you're going. You're never ever pitching towards the end. You're sort of smelling it in different ways, you know, but you're sort of in this vortex. Um, so it's almost like, you know, wrapping a body in a way. I don't know if this complicates things or not, but just this much. Good. <laughs> it's just one minor experience that, um, so something interesting that came up in, in the book is that it turns out that Elsa Chiu was a graduate student in Paris for a while. And she studied under the famous French feminist philosopher Hélène Sixou, who is still alive and very much alive and working in different modes, I guess theater now. And um, I, I got to talk to her really briefly, which for me was like a little bit, you know, hero worship, like, okay, this is going to be, I'm going to muster my courage here. But um, one thing that she told me was that um, Chiu among her classmates, was remembered as being a pretty happy person. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, pretty positive. Uh, and that uh, Sixu had also asked some of Shio's classmates from when she was in grad school, what was your impression? Um, and at least this is, of course, third-hand reporting, but that was, you know, she didn't give anybody, uh, didn't make anybody worried. There weren't any kind of so-called signs or anything like that. So for what it's worth... That, that question of, again, well, we can focus on trying to look for a, 
uh, a cause or some kind of signs or symptoms, but again, that would potentially disrupt our attention to her craft. Well, it makes a beautiful distinction between the inside and the outside, too. You know, which is to say you don't... The affect is not the, is not the creation. The person is not the book, nonetheless. And this isn't... I mean, didn't she leave actual diaries which were utterly different from this, too? So this is still, you know, this is still a literary creation, which, which is sort of an, on, an honor to the writer, I think, to, to know and to say... Um, I often also think about whether I would have liked her, and I kind of think probably not. But, <laughs> but I guess this what I'm just hearing now maybe things because I, I didn't like. I mean, I knew Kathy Acker, and I didn't like her, you know. And it's always it's weird to be living in the <laughs> memorializing of Kathy all the time. And I'm like, she was horrible, you know. And I feel that a bit about this person. And, and so I'm confused, of course, by what I'm hearing. But it's sort of in my mind, I thought I wouldn't like her, perhaps. And, that, and is it kind of like a certain kind of really narcissistic person that assumes that you're as obsessed with them as they are with themselves? And that, that I would meet her somehow and it would be like that, that I would already be in some horrible conversation with her about herself that I wasn't taking part in. Um, <laughs> but... The thing that's glorious always is that the work, the work is the transcendent thing. It's sort of like at a certain point you were like, oh, they're an asshole, but the work is so great. You know? and, I, and I feel that way about her and that what you wind up loving is the performance of the writing and then you wind up loving the person on the outside of the work even though she isn't with us anymore because the aliveness of the writing is, 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 is the engine kind of and is it the, the thing you find feeling reverence for and then the person... Um, and then you, you put up with and then love the person somehow. I mean, that's the nature of my friendship with her that I've invented. <laughs> I feel like it's really like self-conscious about speaking from the dead. You know, there it's like a, like a meta-text where like there's this one scene where uh, in Crocodile where Lada, the narrator, is talking to her friend, Tintin, who's really like, well-rounded. And Tintin says to her, you know, she, like tries to make these like silk pajamas that are really feminine for Lata who can't wear them. And Tintin says, suit yourself. Last week I had a dream where Jiro and I were sitting in a classroom for military training. You were dressed in a green tailcoat and you entered our classroom and motioned for me to come out. You said, hello, tailcoat here. Let me give you this book as a gift. Last Words has kind of some moments like that too where it's like talking about like this thing as something I'm giving to you mm-hmm. and it refers to like the book but it's like the voice the perspective is like not the narrator inside the book mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's the author and so many voices too I mean that's one of the things I one of the many things about the book that I really appreciate that there's there or maybe not maybe not many voices that's not the best way to put it but there're different modalities so a little bit like what Eileen was pointing out earlier that there's you you can switch from a letter of direct address to to she uh, to to a, to her ex uh, or it sometimes it goes into a sort of odd second or third person where you're not sure who's talking and who's being talked about um, it's not easy to pull that off um, in any language and then Chinese has its own there's some corners you can slip into, I think, that are harder to slip into in English um, that she, she finds a way into where it's, there's some ambiguity that you can play off 
if, if you're a skilled writer. Um, and that, so there are different parts. I was trying to think for today what might be uh, some passages to read, and I just couldn't really choose. Um, but um, so one, so okay, I, I know when I, when I was doing the translation, I was talking to people in Taiwan to get a sense of what other readers felt, how people react to it. And I noticed there, there's strong feelings everywhere. Uh, and it's something that I just especially appreciate is that a book like this, that an author like this can be so well loved and not necessarily pigeonholed, like this is our gay author or something like that, but is actually just, this is our author. Um, and yet also somebody whose work can be construed as very dark um, and yet still finds its way into high school and college curricula. Um, I just want that for the United States as well. Um, and so, so, but yeah, part of one of, one of the reactions that some people have is that um, it can be, it can kind of loop around a little bit, so at least this text, maybe a little bit less than, than Crocodile, um, and, and kind of go into these obsessive loops, and you're kind of waiting for her to reemerge as, with complex language. So um, I, there's a passage here, I, I, I won't read the whole thing, but um, one tone, one of the many switches, she'll say, here in Paris, you didn't desire my body. You took no pleasure in making love to me. Maybe thinking I was too heavy for you. Maybe it was even harder for you to stand me in Paris because I needed to be your lover every waking hour. Our different ideas of passion were the main reasons you couldn't live with me. In retrospect, I can laugh about it for what Young said was so perfect, essentially, that I had used you up and so you ran away. That more or less sums it up. Even Young can't stand the intensity of my passion sometimes, and she's a naturally passionate person. She, could, she said that she could feel the desire emanating from my body even when I didn't express it, and it was overwhelming. And what she said is precisely my problem and why you fled from me. You often said I was too serious. You said you wanted a lighthearted relationship. I hate myself when I think about this. I hate my personality. I hate that I'm too passionate and active. I hate that I long for you and need you too much. I hate that I feel so possessive of you. I hate that I'm too male. And I guess this hatred is driving me to become more female. I hate that my passion makes me sick, that it becomes so easy for me to injure myself. I hate that I suffer so easily. I hate that my excessive neediness causes you to worry, causes you to suffocate, causes you to feel oppressed. I hate anything about myself that makes you dislike me, unable to tolerate me, not want to come near me, cause our intimacy to, to die, uh, causes you to abandon me, to betray me, and to be unable even to look at me. When you shouted, I can't live with you on the phone. Tears stream down my face. Talk about hatred. I hate myself most of all. And when I read a passage like that, I mean, it, it, the first time I read it, I was just kind of cringing. I, I think we've all been there. Or perhaps, I, am I just, am I the only person in the room? No, no, no. <laughs> yeah. you know, maybe I'm too intense. Um, and so, but she wrote it. She like put it in. And, and it's not, there's no, there's relief from it. There's so much in this novel. But that part, you know, you kind of, Love it, hate it, identify with it, have to take it, you know. And now I've passed it along to you, sorry. <laughs> but do you have uh, passages that you kind of yeah, um, come back to? Or? Can I just yeah. say the, about the passage you just read, is that kind of excess and that kind of repetition. Titian has this function of creating change. It's sort of like when you have the absolute dark as possible feelings, then you litanize them and you pile them on, pile them on, pile them on. It's sort of like, it doesn't create a condemned object, it creates like something that can move and change. 
You know, like I, I can think of walking down the street at the hottest day of the summer in New York City and thinking, this is horrible, so horrible, so horrible. And then, and then the only way I could make an air conditioner inside of myself was to think, it will always be like this, it will always be like this, it will always be like this. And weirdly, that would create an outside. And I think that's absolutely what she's doing there, is that, that, that she, she is making, turning the inside out and freeing herself from those, those heavy, weighty thoughts. It becomes light. Yeah, I also really respect her for like writing about self-hate because her contribution is really illustrating um, internalized hatred like from, from maybe like society, but also, you know, it could be something like mental illness. I'm not going to say, but it's not my place, but like any source of that. I think it's it's really like hard to like portray like how stigma is created but that's what she's doing it's always like she's going that going there in this place where you shouldn't go and it mm-hmm. doesn't make you look good and she's not afraid to like show that side of her i mean that's brave uh you know i don't think that you can model strength for other people without being vulnerable yourself exactly and it's sort of like how can women be whole without having that kind of excess. And that's kind of self-hate. How could you have a self if you don't hate it, in a way? <laughs> you know. And it's, it's a luxury that women have been denied. Female masochism is not possible because you know, the world already t- tortures women. We can't, we can't torture ourselves. But then if we can't torture ourselves, how can we, we be dimensional, in a way? And so with misogyny, women are also misogynists. You know, it's sort of like the depth of the depth of emotion is what makes us viable. You know, I mean, I think I think this kind of exactly what you're saying is this kind of like claiming of female darkness is female becoming. You know, like that that '80s, '70s, '80s thing of the, you know, the female, you know, the kind of um, bionic woman. You know, it's like no, about the weak, trampled, horrible, abject, self-hating woman. You know, like she will free me. You know, and I think, and I think that's what's happening here. Um. Okay, I'll read a passage about self-hate. Then this is. We can go farther. Yeah, yeah. To me, this is like the iconic passage from this book. Um, I am a woman who loves women. The tears I cry, they spring from a river, and drain across my face like yolk. My time was gradually consumed by tears. The whole world loves me. But what does it matter since I hate myself? Humanity stabs a bayonet into a baby's chest. Fathers produce daughters that they pull into the bathroom to rape. Handicapped midgets drag themselves onto highway overpasses to announce that they're about to end it all, just to collect a little spare change. And mental patients have irrepressible hallucinations and suicidal urges. How can the world be this cruel? A human being only has so much in them, and yet you must learn through experience until you finally reach the maddening conclusion that the world wrote you off a long time ago, or accept the prison sentence that your crime is your existence. And the world keeps turning as if nothing had happened. The four smiles on the faces of the lucky ones say it all. It's either this or getting stabbed in the chest with a bayonet, getting raped, dragging yourself onto a highway overpass, or checking into a mental institution. 
No one will ever know about your tragedy, and the world eluded its responsibility ages ago. All that she knows is you've been crucified for something. You're going to spend the rest of your life feeling like no one and nothing will help you, that you're in it alone. Your individual circumstances, which, cir- which separate you from everyone else, will keep you behind bars for life. On top of it all, humanity tells me I'm lucky. Privilege after privilege has been conferred upon me, and if I don't seem content with my lot, they'll be devastated. Shui Ling, please don't knock on my door anymore. You don't know how dark it is here in my heart. I don't know who I am at all. What's ahead of me is unclear, yet I must move forward. I don't want to become myself. I know the answer to the riddle, but I can't stand to have it revealed. The first time I saw you, I knew I would fall in love with you, that my love would be wild, raging, and passionate, but also illicit, that I could never develop into anything, and instead it would split apart like pieces of a landslide. As flesh and blood, I was not distinct. You turned me into my own key, And when you did, my fear seized me in a flood of tears that soon abated. I stopped hating myself and discovered the corporeal me. She didn't understand. Didn't understand she could love me. Maybe that she already did love me. Didn't understand that beneath the hide of a lamb was a demonic beast that had to suppress the urge to rip her to shreds. Didn't understand that love, every little bit of it, was about exchange. Didn't understand that she caused me suffering. Didn't understand that love was like that. She gave me a puzzle in a box. She put the pieces together patiently, one by one, and completed the picture of me. I think of this book as you know, a cross between fiction and essay and film because it's so reliant on images, like a sequence of images that takes the reader from a very like ugly picture of themselves to what like an image of liberation the image of like the little boy at the end of this book who scales a wall, which is her. It's, it's her, Lada, scaling a wall and then coming out on the other side like the little boy in uh, Truffaut's The 400 Blows and he makes it all the way to the ocean and he's free, but that means that he's going to determine his own fate. I think it's a beautiful ending. It's not a sad book, though it takes you through a lot of that terrain of self-hate. Ari, you had said that um, you've been teaching her work to undergraduates. Can you talk about that a little bit, which is kind of amazing? I I, I, I agree that it's amazing that that we have, that these works are out there and that we can 
they, they can become available now. Something I noticed is that uh, it's probably about the past six, seven years that there have been more and more works available now in English, both uh, primary works and then secondary things. So there's actually, we're, we're starting to develop, develop some momentum in availability of, of uh, queer Chinese language materials. Teaching the work to undergrads has been um, quite a process because nobody comes away without a reaction. Like someone, and it's always very personal as well, and I wondered what, what you thought of this uh, as well. This Notes of a Crocodile takes place during her college years and people um, immediately want to write about their own experience. And then I find myself in that professorial position where you're also kind of hearing people's personal experience and I'm not always sure how to field it responsibly, um, but I am offering them the work, so it's not like I don't expect there to be resonances. Um, but I, and I also debate with myself, should I put a, some kind of, should I preface it, should I spring it on people? Should I be like, okay, this is on the syllabus this week, you're gonna be reading this, uh, or should there be kind of a, a little label, some kind of warning label on it? Um, but I don't, I, I usually, I don't, um, the only thing that might count as a warning that I might say to students is, um, it's an emotionally intense book, so you may like to, if, if, if you're in a vulnerable space, you may want to consider an optional alternate reading or we can discuss it. Um, but I, generally, as a teacher, I want to encourage people whenever possible to just go for it and engage. That's why one of the reasons that she, that she wrote it. Uh, but in a unique position right now, because thanks uh, to Bonnie as well, now we have both works and so I can say to students, all right, week eight, you can choose one and um, just pick the one that you prefer. Uh, this, this one, so, it's a, one of the, uh, Joe gives you the option of reading it in any order, um, so I think some of my students want to get out of the reading. <laughs> so like, well, you know, she said read it in any order, so I, I only read 10 chapters. Or, there are a couple of chapters which um, are only one line. Let's see if I can come to one of those. <laughs> so I think a lot of times we're just even a, a, a poem or something like that. She's trying to, um, the, the students are sometimes trying to, yeah, here's one. Like, Read that line, please. <laughs> the period of tender love. She is in Taiwan and Zoe is in Taiwan. That's letter 18. <laughs> and then, uh, oh, there's a, a quote from the Book of Odes after that. Um, in life or in death, however separated, we pledged our word to our wives, we held hands, we would grow old together. And then letter 19, the golden age of oaths, one. She is in Taipei, Zoe is in Tours. <laughs> so these, sometimes I get students who are kind of reading a bit selectively. Um, <laughs> huh. mm. uh, but that may not have been where your question was going. No, that's, that's great. I mean. Yeah, I, but it's, I, it feels good to be able to offer some material. I, I think, um, speaking from my own experience, you know, I, I went in with unconscious prejudices and that I, I, on some level, I wanted to expunge by learning Chinese and by really trying to engage with a world that was not my own. And hopefully over the years have shed some of those prejudices. Um, Can I ask what those prejudices were? Well, I think just sort of generic, um, white person-ocentrism um, and just a kind of, I grew up in upstate New York uh, with, without much money and the community was very, it was not terribly diverse where I grew up. Um, I was one of the only Jewish people in town and we 
we hit it, and all that kind of stuff. In New York, you know, you wouldn't think, but that's how it was. Um, and so I, I think kind of classic case of um, my um, young self was, I wanted to learn Chinese because my best friend growing up was a Vietnamese boy whose family had come over after that war. And I didn't know the difference. I didn't know the difference. Um, so I, I think that was one of the kinds of uh, lack of information and uh, lack of understanding that I was starting out with. So things have, things have evolved a bit since then, <laughs> thankfully. Um, but then I also am really grateful for the chance, um, especially with, a, uh, with, with these books, to be able to give some more information to people. And the notes of a crocodile too, I was just beside myself with excitement when, it, when it, you decided to translate it because this is a work that I think people at that vulnerable age, you know, are really, anyone really, but especially because it talks about that time of life are really going to appreciate. So it's kind of a gateway drug. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and didn't you, this, in the student population, there's lots of Chinese students in, at UCSD. Mm. Oh, yeah, that's, that's true. In fact, so most of my students now are actually from mainland China. Um, but but there are diversity of, of Chinese backgrounds. So a lot of students are from Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, and elsewhere in the Sinophone diaspora. And um, I usually have a talk with them at the beginning, like, what am I... Why am I here? Why are we here uh, doing this work? You know, why, why am I not the different person who's offering you these materials? And um, I think it's the, if we can look at it in a negative way. Like, why is this, why is this white person um, co-opting Chinese culture and teaching you about China? Or we can look at it in a more productive way. I, I mean, I have to, it's an existential question in my case. Um, but we can say, in mainland China, certain information isn't available online, especially for LGBT communities. Hmm. In Taiwan, certain information about China is uh, considered highly controversial. In Singapore, there might be certain questions about belonging. But in a classroom in North America, everyone can be in the same class and have conversations that may not be possible elsewhere. So Cho's work is an interesting one because it speaks to so many humans. <laughs> if you have a heart, then the work will have something to say to you. Uh, including you know, negative things. There are plenty of people who don't like the work at all. Um, so, yeah, so I guess that's a long and rambling answer. No, it's a, and, and don't they have an option to read it in Chinese or English? Oh, yes, yeah. Which is fascinating. Mm -hmm. um. That's the, the accident of our course requirement, is that it has to, they have to write their papers in English, but they can, these students can read the material in Chinese if they want. Yeah, it makes for a pretty interesting uh, classroom context. Yeah. I don't know. Um, when you were in school, did you, what kind of reading did you do? Were you like, or would you have liked to do? I guess we could ask what would be an ideal classroom, I don't know, conversationally. Would you have wanted to read this book when you were younger? Oh, totally. I've, I feel like there was something in the air around the time that she died. Right. Like she died in June 1995, and that was the month that I graduated from high school. Wow. Um, and I don't know what I was doing. I, w I was like into like queer lit in high school because, I don't know, I, I discovered Camille Paglia. <laughs> and That's I really read, queer. <laughs> 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 
read I read Sexual Persona and like I've been scarred by that book. <laughs> like hmm. that's colored so many different works of art for me. Uh, although the, I mean, and it eventually led me to like study like Saint Sebastian hmm. and like the whole gay iconography of that. Um, in different cultures, like the way it appears in Yukio Mishima's work and in Derek Jarman's work. Um, so I started like doing this like comparative literature, but kind of queer in a way. Um, and it turned it, I turned like that St. Sebastian project into like, um, like a research project my freshman year. And I feel like in many ways, like the the reading that I did, uh, or like like the film that I was like into, like so much prepared me for this that I felt like I studied to translate this book before I had even heard of her. You know, like Tarkovsky's like my favorite filmmaker. Like that that whole bit about like nostalgia in Nose of a Crocodile like that was that is not a non literal uh, interpretation of the film Nostalgia which is just about a, a Russian artist in exile and longing for home and the way she explains it is like how you make a work of art and how it starts as just material and idea, and then it becomes like this fluffy white dog because it takes on a life of its own. And I found so much solace in that that it it made me like love my work. You know, because like you just know that what like he's knitting like this is an image of a man who's like knitting and like through like through while everyone else is like getting rich. You know, like, or like enjoying their lives in some way, and you just like work with your material and you work on it, and it's just white yarn, and one day it becomes a fluffy white dog. It must have been pretty powerful for you when you encountered the book with that kind of preparations, like meant to be that you would translate it. Oh yeah, totally. I, yeah, I feel like I was asked to translate it. I took in college. I took a class. The best class I took in college was called the Adolescent in Fiction, and it was taught by somebody who was such a queer, but he was a bisexual. Um, and 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 we read Confessions of a Mask, Mishima, and we read um, we read uh, Violet Leduc, um, Teresa and Isabel. I mean, it was a very queer. And then it was just you know it was it was clear that adolescence was this kind of like kind of place of transition and, and sexual, you know, becoming and, um, and, and that's what we were you know, I mean, I think we read, read J.D. Salinger, we read um, what else do we read? I can't but, but they're all very, you know, all very you know, adolescent um, and then our, our term paper was to write our own adolescent memoir you know, and it really, began, it kind of began my writing career because I realized that it was sort of like, it was to write 
a story, but a, a story based on my own life. And I was so full of, I was living at home in college and commuting and so full of suffering. You know, and these books, each one of the books spoke to me more, but Mishima the most because it was the book about becoming gay and, and, and seeing, you know, the image of Joan of Arc for a man becoming in that, tra- you know, and I had been obsessed with Peter Pan as a child and, you know, sort of really upset by Mary Martin playing Peter Pan as a kind of violation of my gender theory of childhood and, and you know and it really you know but so it was just kind of and this book so belongs in that syllabus that's what's so interesting it was like they absolutely would have popped right in and, and would be there today I think what, what a great starting syllabus I mean what a great place to to <laughs> what a, I would have loved to have had a class like that and I think it was a way for him to speak about who he was you know at that moment in time the best he could mm-hmm. you know. were you in touch after that he was somebody who read my work and would just, every time a book came out he would write me a note and say I'm watching you I'm following your career it was incredible and he, he wrote novels you know eventually and they were pretty good and, and he just died a couple of years ago but he was, Lee Grove was his name if anybody's from Boston do we want to op- do people have any questions would, can we open it to the audience perhaps That's the worst yeah. moment. It was like, what do you think? <laughs> How do you like my new haircut? You know? There's somebody over here. Hi, um, so I really enjoyed this conversation so far. I'm, um, Uh-oh. <laughs> you know, I'm a librarian at the Public Library, and I think it's really important to bring diverse work into libraries so that people have more access to them. So I was really just curious um, what your experience has been of getting translated work It probably varies a lot individually. So I know with Chinese translations or translations of more contemporary work, um, there it can be a little um, apart from sort of like the big five, some mainland authors who are more well known, uh, like Moyen or Yuha. It can be hard to it can be hard to um, to convince people that there might be an audience outside of a niche interest, hmm. and that's a pity because the nature of literature is that it likely would be available to many. Um, so, uh, so, for example, the, but there's some great um, presses. Columbia University Press has a line of Taiwan literature. It's fantastic. Uh, it's a university press. Um, so, and, and bringing things to uh, uh, larger presses or literary presses, is, it's a bit of a task that way. Luckily, New York Review was open um, to it for various reasons, so that was a really good window, um, but I, I don't know what your experience was, Bonnie, or with that. Or. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's largely a labor of love. <laughs> I mean, for the translator. Bonnie, can I ask right away, did they find you or did you find them? Well, I think around that, t- this was around, in around 2012 that um, I signed a contract for the book, and it was after they'd already acquired Last Words, mm-hmm. And that was um, coming out in 2014. And it was because um, I won a grant from the Penheim Translation Fund mm. for that book that huh. even 
got out. Yeah. So from the beginning, though, I was like really um, like plugging the book. That's actually how I got in contact with Ari. Yeah, because like I kind of had this feeling that well, this has to be a book that's there's nothing wrong with academic presses, but this is you know has to be something that has good in the hands of like a general audience, which is a really different question because like I mean you don't necessarily want you know like the book to always be like the study tool for people who actually are learning Chinese. Right? You want people who know absolutely nothing. Like, the less you know, the better. That's, like, the person that I think I want to reach. And for me, that, that meant, like, you know, like, contacting, trying to think of, like, the equivalent and, like, what media or, like, would like to publish it. And I just kind of, like, like hand-publicized it to places like Autostraddle and, like, pitched it myself. Hmm. There was mention of uh, the difference between the autobiography and the actual journals that you have been wrote. So, have those been published in Chinese, and is there a plan to translate those as well? Those have been published, and so her work um, attracts a kind of a cult following, and so there, there's definitely a demand to read the diaries, and people do read them together, and uh, read them as a uh, uh, sort of as proof, for lack of a better word, that this was a very deliberate text and not an incidental <laughs> postmortem. Um, so yes, uh, as for translating them, I, I don't know. Do you know of any anyone translating the diaries? No, but they weren't constructed as literary, so it, that would be a very interesting challenge. Probably in this country, it would it would have to be a bigger cult <laughs> to. To facilitate the publishing them, of the translating, right? Mm. Just, I mean, yeah. Um, there was a guy right here. Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask more of a political question than, than um, a literary question. But it's, it's the role of suicide in Chinese culture. And I'm, what I'm relating this to is recent political history where there was the gay couple in Taiwan, uh, the Taiwanese. Hmm. And I can't imagine as an American anybody's suicide having that kind of motivation on American politics or on American people. I don't think we care that much. Is there something in the Chinese character where this kind of statement is more motivating or it strikes the heart in a more profound way there than perhaps it does here? Could I interrupt just to, just to say that I think that gay teen 